Let's take our Bibles tonight and go to Acts chapter 5, if you would. I want to challenge you tonight uh, along the title of the first Christians evangelizing. And I want to begin with an illustration that took place about, uh, oh, probably 16, 17 years ago when I was pastoring in Indiana. We had a missionary out of our church, actually two of them, uh, in Suriname, South America. And we went down to visit those missionaries. Uh, the ministry that our missionaries had in the capital city was church planting, but they also did church planting in the jungle. And uh, if you know anything about the history of Suriname, uh, those are people who were former slaves who uh, years ago rose up in rebellion, took control of the country, and now it is, it is an autonomous country uh, with a wonderful group of people, but many of them in the jungles are absolutely pagan in their beliefs and in their lifestyle. So we were going to fly down where they had a jungle ministry, 150 miles over a, a dense forest canopy of, of, of jungle, uh, no roads, any, nothing except rivers. And I was told by the pilot in this little Cessna of the Surinamese airline that if we go down in the jungle, we will never be found. Now, Surinamese Airlines is a, a group of probably three or four Cessnas that are flown by young men who are hired by this particular businessman. So I was sitting in the right front seat of a Cessna. The young man was a 21-year-old pilot, and uh, we were talking through the headphones, and, and we were being buffeted by the wind, and, and I was looking down and seeing the jungle canopy below, and, and he was telling me as we flew down to Stolman's Island, which was a grass strip in the middle of the jungle, that his boss's daughter crashed the plane the week before, a different plane, and uh, we hoped that we had a good landing on the grass strip. So I began to get a little bit nervous. And then suddenly, as we were bouncing around like a ping pong ball, this GPS device that they had, which was very interesting, it was a GPS device, but it also had 360 degrees on it. I'm not sure what it actually was called, but he called it a GPS device. It fell off the front of the plane and fell down into the floorboard. And the guy, the pilot, said to me, he said, Mr. Stebman, will you reach down and get that? Because if that breaks or if it, if it gets messed up, we will not make it out of here. So I reached down and picked up the GPS. And for the rest of the flight over the jungle, I held it for all that I was worth. <laughs> because I understood and he told me that we have an exact heading to a very small strip of land 150 miles away, and if we veer one degree from that heading, we will be lost. That's the nature of why that was so important to me at that time. Folks, we have in our hands tonight the Word of God, and it is, can I say it reverently, the heavenly GPS. It is that which guides not only our souls on this planet, but our souls for eternity. It is God's Word. It is our guide. And if we veer especially from the gospel and we add to the gospel or take away, we will cause people, if we preach a false gospel, to be lost for all eternity with no hope. So it's really important that we hold this GPS properly in our hands and that we are faithful to it. 
Now, we're in the book of Acts tonight. You understand that the book of Acts is the first volume of church history. It covers a period of time from the end of the Gospels uh, and the Lord Jesus going back to heaven, the Great Commission, until near the end of the Apostle Paul's life, covering a period of about 30 years. If we did not have the book of Acts, we would not understand the epistles. Acts is the key link between what Christ did and all the writings of the apostles in those later documents they sent to the churches. It's the link between the gospels and the epistles. For example, if you did not have the book of Acts, you would have a Bible tonight that had the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them ends with something in the form of the Great Commission, the disciples, 120 in the upper room waiting for the promise of the Spirit's coming in power. If you did not have the book of Acts, you would turn the last page of John's Gospel and the next page in your Bible would say, Paul the Apostle to the church at Rome. And you would say rightly, who is this guy Paul and how did the Gospel get from those 120 disciples in the upper room to the capital of the world empire? Folks, the answer is the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us how the early church did ministry, and that's very, very important. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts has lessons for us today. Now, I must give you a warning, uh, and it's very important that you understand that warning. The book of Acts is a transitional book. There are things in the book of Acts that were apostolic in nature. They were only for the apostles until the canon of Scripture was completed. They're not for today. And I'll illustrate it by picking on my friend, Brother Messler. Brother Messler, have you ever been walking down the street and your shadow fall across a sick person and heal them? Has that ever happened in your ministry? It hasn't? I wonder, Pastor, I, I know you're somewhere. Where's Pastor here? Okay, right here. I'm sorry, I missed you. Pastor, has that ever happened to you? I mean, you've been in the ministry, what, 35 years? And you've never had your shadow... I don't know what's wrong. But anyway, I do know what's wrong. You see, there were gifts like speaking in tongues and miraculous healings that were for the validation of the apostolic period. We'll talk about some of those tonight, and they're not for today. But folks, there are things in the book of Acts that are for today. As a matter of fact, the number one evidence in the book of Acts of being filled with the Spirit is not speaking in tongues. The number one evidence, if you count the verbs in the book of Acts, the number one evidence of being filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts is speaking the Word of God with boldness. Giving the gospel with boldness. And that is for today. We are to be a people, you are to be a church that is given to empowered New Testament evangelism in speaking the Word of God with boldness. And so, like that GPS, the Bible is our guide. And if we veer from the Word of God one degree, we're going to end up in trouble. So what do we do? We go back to the Bible, and we see how the early Christians did evangelism. Folks, there is so much confusion today in American Christianity about evangelism, local church, all the ministries of the local church, and even about the gospel. You know, I had someone tell me recently, Brother Stedman, I, I gave that person the gospel. I said, really, tell me about it. They said, yeah, I invited them to church. 
Now, folks, don't get me wrong. It's really good for you to invite people to church, but that's not the gospel. So there's a lot of confusion, and we need to get back to the Bible and learn how the first Christians did ministry. So tonight, we're looking at the first Christians evangelizing. Now, the growth of the New Testament church, let me take you quickly through the book of Acts to Acts chapter 5. You remember the Great Commission that Christ reaffirmed in Acts chapter 1, that we should be witnesses. Then in Acts chapter 2, the, the coming of the Spirit in power with, with the cloven tongues of fire and the sound of rushing mighty wind. And Peter's great message on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 get saved. And from that first beginning of the church in the book of Acts, that began with what we might refer to as pulpit-type preaching, gradually the record moves more from pulpit preaching to also preaching one-on-one -on -one evangelism. So now you have, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles and the disciples, they're meeting in the temple complex. There is some pulpit preaching going on, but there's a lot of one-on-one -on -one evangelism going on, and it is empowered by the Spirit of God, and Satan is not happy, and the Sanhedrin is not happy. So there's going to be this conflict that takes place, but the growth of the church from 3,000 to 5,000 was facilitated both by pulpit preaching and by one-on-one -on -one evangelism. And folks, your church will grow, it will be strengthened and used by God, not just by pulpit preaching. Now, you've got a really good pastor. I've known him a long time. But his preaching alone will not build this congregation and this church. God has given him the responsibility of equipping you to do the work of the ministry for you to evangelize this community. And so we need to get back to a biblical concept of the first Christians evangelizing. Now, many of you probably know this, but in China, a communist nation of over a billion people, there is a state-approved Christian church. Now, some people don't know that. There is a lot of religious persecution, but there is in China a state-approved Christian church. It is sometimes called the Three Self Church. In the services, they sing hymns, they read the Bible, they have prayers, they preach sermons. But there is one thing the Chinese government will not let them do. It will not let them evangelize publicly. And because this state-approved church is not allowed to evangelize, over 50 million professing Christians in China will have nothing to do with the state church. They're an underground church because they believe that you can't be a real Christian unless you evangelize. Now, folks, don't misunderstand where I'm going with this tonight. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ apart from human effort. It is all of his grace and mercy. But if we were not real Christians unless we evangelized, would you be a real Christian? When is the last time on purpose 
you have somehow, it may be even through a tract, it may be through uh, a, a, an evangelistic Bible study, it may be just simply witnessing and sharing your testimony. When is the last time on purpose that you obeyed your Lord and Master and gave the gospel to someone? We're going to talk tonight about the first Christian's evangelizing. You see, God has commanded every believer, God has commanded every believer and thus every local church to be involved in empowered, effective New Testament personal evangelism. But the question remains, how do we do that? Or what is necessary for us to do that? And the answer is given to us in Acts chapter 5. So let's begin. We're going to begin reading here, Acts chapter 5, down around verse 12. So if you would follow in that text, please. And I'll read just a few verses, and we'll see, first of all, the components of empowered, effective New Testament personal evangelism. It says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And the believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the street and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folk and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Now what we're finding in this reading is the beginning of the benchmarks at the church of Jerusalem of empowered, effective New Testament evangelism. Now, folks, we do not live by checklist. We don't live by uh, doing this, doing this, doing this, and if we do everything, that makes us spiritual. We, we don't live that way biblically. But there are benchmarks which are tools of evaluation to see if we are doing what God's commanded us to do with the right motives. And here we have three components in the, in the church at Jerusalem uh, of that which is empowered, effective New Testament evangelism. It's how they did it as the first Christians. The first thing we find is they had a unified purity in the church. Now, it's very interesting, and you can see it in uh, my copy of the text. Uh, maybe yours has it, maybe yours doesn't. Uh, but I look at verse 12, and the first half of the verse, uh, it ends in the middle of the verse, among the people. And then in my, in my copy of the Bible, there is the opening of a parenthesis. And then that parenthetical information goes all the way down through verse 14. So what is happening here, Luke is recording for us what was taking place, and then he stops, and he gives us some parenthetical information. And that's what we're going to look at first, what's in the parenthesis. But then he picks up in verse 15 the rest of the story, and we'll look at that in a moment. So what is so important to Luke as he begins this narrative, which is going to result in a lot of people being saved, what is that which he emphasizes that is so important at the church at Jerusalem? It is this, a unified purity. So let's read what's in the parenthesis. Verse 12, in the middle of the verse, And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them, and the believers were more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. You see, he's saying here that the believers were in one accord, 
they had a unity, but they also had a unified purity. What has happened? Now, you remember early in Acts chapter 5, remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They lied to the Holy Ghost and they kept back a portion, which they said they were giving, but they kept it back, and God smote both of them and killed them. And the church was so impacted that they, they had a, a new purity of wanting to please the Lord. But it's interesting here that not only did that purity impact the church, but it also caused unsaved people not to want to join near the church. Look at the middle, verse 13 again. And of the rest, that's talking about the unbelievers, durst no man join himself to them, but the people, the Jewish people, magnified them. Now, we don't use the word durst anymore, but we might say at this one, nobody dared to join the church being unsaved or living a life of sin because they feared the judgment of God. But at the same time, the end of the verse says, they magnified the believers. Here was a lost world because of what took place in the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. The lost world looked at a purified church at Jerusalem and said, we're not going to get near those folks lest God kill us, but we really respect them because they're pure. Now, folks, this passage totally does away with the concept that we should become like the world to win the world. As a matter of fact, if we're going to win the world, we need to be pure and we need to be like Jesus Christ. And this church, because of God's working, they had a purity that was unified and they went forward as a holy church with the gospel. Can I say it this way? Carnality never produces spirituality. It can't. Now, there's a lot of talk today in contemporary Christian churches uh, where on Sunday they're rocking out uh, the gospel. They, they talk about their mission. They talk about evangelism. But you know, carnality never produces spirituality. You know what the churches are like that are going to see souls genuinely born into God's kingdom? They're going to be pure churches. You know what kind of churches are going to see missionaries called and sent to the field? They're going to be pure churches. They're going to be, they're going to be unified in purity because God is doing a work in their lives and they're taking the gospel and lost people see the difference and they may not want to come because you know, they think if I ever went through the doors of that church, God would strike me dead. That's what was happening here. But they're going to respect you if you have a testimony of the holiness of God in this assembly. So the hallmark, the beginning of this empowered, effective evangelism that at the end of verse 14, a lot of people are getting saved. The hallmark is a unified purity in the church because the people are walking with Christ. The great 19th century Scottish pastor and evangelist Robert Murray McShane once wrote eloquently of maintaining spiritual purity relating to evangelism. This is what he said, quote, Do not forget the culture of the inner man, I mean of the heart, how diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. 
I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name in great measure according to the purity and perfections of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus Christ. Folks, God has called us as his people to be pure and to be unified. They were with one accord in Solomon's porch and they had a testimony of purity that resulted in people being saved. So let me make the application on this first point. How's your purity? Not are you perfect. There is not a person in this room that is perfect. We are sinners lost and undone, headed to hell, and even after we get saved, we are very imperfect creatures. But are you walking with Christ? Are you endeavoring to, uh, to, to serve him and to love him with all your heart and to have the right motivation for ministry? How's your purity? And how's your unity as a church body? You know, when God's people are pure and they're walking with Christ, there should be, as in this passage, a resultant unity. But when God's people get their eyes off the Lord and get their eyes on all the little things that can divide, evangelism ceases and people don't get saved. So the first hallmark is this matter of a unified purity. The second one is found in verse 12 in the beginning and then after the parenthetical information in verses 15 and 16. So let me read verses 12 and following without the parenthesis and you'll get the idea. Verse 12, and by the hand of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Verse 15, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Now, there are two spiritual movements in those verses without the parenthesis, okay? There is, first of all, signs and wonders in verse 12. Now, we understand that the, the apostles did miracles at which the people wondered. That word wonders refers to the response of the people to the miracles. But the word signs refers to the intent of the miracle. In other words, God gave the apostles signs that validated that they were truly the messengers of the true and living God, Jesus Christ. It validated their ministry. So they had, they, they had, they had signs at which the people wondered miracles. But then it moves down to what some of those were in verse 15. And in the streets, people brought beds and couches. Now, it's very interesting to me. According to one commentary that I read, beds, and I'm quoting, beds refer to small beds or cots, whereas couches describe the straw mattresses commonly used by the poor. So these two words apparently, according to Greek scholars, refer to the beds of rich people, and the beds of poor people. They both brought their beds out so that their loved one could be healed. Then continuing the quote, Luke uses these two terms to imply that both rich and poor sought healing from the apostles. Why? They were known for their spiritual power. Now folks, in our society today, there is a great need to evangelize the poor. 
There is a great need today for addiction ministry. There is a great need today to go out into the places that are, are the, the seediest places of society and see those poor people and, and those prostitutes and those drunkards and those lost people evangelize. There is a great need for that. But there's also a great need for bankers and doctors and lawyers and engineers to be evangelized with the gospel. And a church that's going to be doing the right job for God in evangelism that has a unified purity and spiritual power because Christ is there, you should be seeing the upper crust of society being saved. By the way, someone said the upper crust is just a bunch of crumbs that stick together, and I think that's probably true. The upper crust being saved, but also the down and outer being saved. There should be people in this church that don't come in the first time in a suit. And they don't look like you, but they need to be discipled. But there should be people being saved who will come in the first time with a suit because they wear a suit every day to their business. Folks, that is what we're learning from this example, that the power of Jesus Christ upon a unified church of purity is a, a power that can reach every part of society. So let me ask you, how are you doing with your spiritual power in going with the gospel? How are you doing with reaching poor people? How are you doing in reaching wealthy people? And then the third thing we find, and we're still talking in, in this first main point about these components. What, what was this church at Jerusalem like at the core in doing effective empowered evangelism? Well, they had a unified purity. They had spiritual power that was evidenced by both classes of society coming to Christ. But thirdly, they had a sanctified persistence. And we need to have, you need to understand this needs to be sanctified persistence. Not just persistence, but sanctified persistence. Now, what's happening? Acts 15, beginning of verse 17, all the way down through verse 28, records the resultant persecution. I mean, the Sanhedrin gets upset, and uh, they call Peter to account for what is being done and the other apostles, and there is persecution. But notice Peter's response to that persecution, beginning in verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, when they were commanded, not by the government, by the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish religious government, which was different from the Roman secular government, but they were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, and the other apostles, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now folks, that phrase, we ought to obey God rather than men, is not a phrase that gives you the right to break any law that you want to break just because you don't like the law. That's not what it's talking about. It's in the context of preaching the gospel. Then Peter, notice what Peter does. He steps up to the plate and he says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Peter doesn't back down. Peter doesn't waffle and say, well, maybe I need to be less, uh, less forward with the gospel. He actually uses a Greek word here, slew, which means in the Greek to murder with your own hands. I mean, he's telling these guys who are really mad at him already, you murdered Jesus with your own hands when you hanged him on a tree. 
And then he says, Him, Jesus, hath God exalted with a right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses of these things. Clearly implying that the Sanhedrin is not. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. This phrase, prince and a savior, refers to the originator or the pioneer of something and also the source of eternal life. Peter is absolutely saying to the Sanhedrin, you need to repent because you killed him with your own hands. So what do we learn from that? Folks, in the face of even governmental opposition, when that governmental opposition says, do not preach in the name of Jesus, we cannot back down. We've got to have a sanctified persistence. Now, what does that look like for us today? You know, perhaps our government's saying, if you preach against homosexuality, your church will be shut down. Do we back down from the truth of God's word? Or if you evangelize, uh, for example, Muslims, uh, you know, you will, be, uh, you will be taken to court. There are places in the U.S. where that, like Dearborn Heights, Michigan, where that is a big problem. Should we back down? No, Peter and the disciples had a sanctified persistence. So we need to understand that we are to be going with the gospel. So how's your persistence in your witness, sanctified persistence? How is your spiritual power? How is your unified purity? I read a cartoon in a Christian leadership magazine, showed a pastor who was preaching, had just preached a message on evangelism, and he said to the church, folks, we don't have any evangelistic outreach. We need to start winning people to Christ. And a little lady in the cartoon came up to him and said, pastor, how can you say that we have no outreach when our Brunswick stew sales reach millions? You know, they, they had a very big, uh, you know, they were selling stew and they were doing all kinds of social things, but they didn't have evangelism. Now, folks, there is a place for a social interaction in the community. There is a place for doing that in order to open doors. But we have got to be like these early believers that we are not primarily spending our time on Brunswick stew sales, but we're spending our time evangelizing and making disciples. That's what the early church did in evangelism. Now, very quickly, I've got about 10 minutes. I want you to see the second point tonight. Not just the components that made up what this church was like in their evangelism and the spirit that they had, but secondly, the consequences of empowered, effective New Testament personal evangelism. What should we expect when we really are doing evangelism right? Now, let me go down a rabbit trail, and if you don't know what that is, you can see me afterwards. I, I grew up in Tennessee, and a lot, of, a lot of folks know what a rabbit trail is, but I'm going to go down a little bit of a story. But you know, one of the big problems we have at Baptist World Mission relating to communicating with churches is that sometimes churches have the wrong expectations about how effective their missionary is. You know, there are some churches still that if a missionary doesn't report a certain number of people saved, those churches will drop that missionary support. But you know, when I study the book of Acts and I study Paul coming back and reporting to the churches, it was not about the number of people that got saved. It was about a lot of other spiritual issues that reflect the faithfulness of the missionary. 
So I would challenge you, if, if you think that a missionary is a good missionary just because of the numbers of souls they say get saved, I would challenge you to examine the book of Acts and see what you really should be looking for in evaluating that missionary. Now, I said that to say this. You know, when we do not establish the right expectations, we're going to be disappointed when the wrong thing happens. For example, if you have the expectation that you're going to go door to door and everybody is going to welcome you with open arms and just brag on you because of your faithful ministry of giving the gospel, if you think that's what's going to happen, you're going to quit probably after the second door. So what should our expectations be? What are the consequences if a church, if an individual is doing evangelism biblically? And that's a whole separate message, what, what that looks like. But when we're doing it, what are the results biblically? Well, there are three in this passage. And I think all three of them should be expected by this church in this community. Number one, there was violent opposition. Look at verse 33. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. The Sanhedrin, who was hard-hearted against God to begin with, when Peter was bold in giving them the gospel, they violently opposed Peter. And folks, this church should expect, especially the way the culture of our nature is going, if you are doing evangelism biblically, there will be some violent opposition. Just recently, one of my heroes, Dr. David Ennis, retired from being the pastor of Hamilton Square Baptist Church in San Francisco. And I remember probably, Larry may remember this, 25, 30 years ago, because they took a stand against homosexuality in the community, uh, they were attacked by the homosexual community and they were beating on the doors during the church service. You know, folks, we may have that kind of response from society going forward if we are being biblical New Testament Christians. The Lord Jesus, didn't he say that there would be those who would hate you because they hated me and they'll, they'll, they'll persecute you as they persecuted me? We are not accepted from that if we are being faithful in evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. So there was violent opposition. So I wrote in my notes, if the gospel we preach is not convicting enough to make some men angry, is it convicting enough to bring them to salvation? Now, folks, don't misunderstand. We're never to be rude in evangelism. We're, we're to be gracious and kind, and we're to go with tears, but we are to be bold with the authority of Jesus Christ in taking the gospel. And that will often result in violent opposition. The second one, which I think is very interesting, the second response is indifferent toleration. And we're going to take just a couple of minutes on this to explain what's happening. And that's verses 34 through 40. So let me read that. There stood there, then stood there up in the council a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. Now, let me identify who this man Gamaliel is. He is, he is a Pharisee. He is a leader in the Sanhedrin. He was the great rabbi. As a matter of fact, he was one of the few in the history of Judaism that was given the title Rabban, R-A-B-B-A-N, because he was so highly esteemed. 
Uh, during this time, he had a, a student who was his number one pupil named Saul of Tarsus, who sat at the feet of this man Gamaliel. This was a Jewish man of power and influence. And he said unto them, to the Sanhedrin, you men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves who was slain. And all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to nothing to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be fined even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. This counsel of Gamaliel sounds like good counsel. If it's of men, it will fail. If it's of God, it will be successful. Until you really think about what he's saying. Folks, let me ask you this. Let me, let me reverse the logic here, and, and I think this is consistent with commentators who agree with what I'm going to say. That doesn't mean it's right, but I think it's right. We can reverse that according to the laws of English language and say, he said, if it's of God, it will be successful. We can reverse that. If it's successful, it's of God. So let me ask you, is that true? If it's successful, it's of God. Now, we as Americans tend to think that sometimes. Let me ask you, has Islam around the world been successful? Yes or no? Yes, it has. Is it of God? No, it's not. Has Mormonism to some degree been successful? Yes, it has. Is it of God? No, it is not. So to say that whether or not something of God is whether or not it succeeds or fails is very bad theology. And this guy, Gamaliel, has some really bad theology, but I believe behind it is a pragmatism. Pragmatism is just doing that which is expedient or is, is most practical, which will benefit you. And he's basically trying to get them out of a bad situation. And this is what he's saying. Uh, leave them alone. Don't worry about them. Marginalize them. You know, folks, there are many today in our culture, in our government, who are doing everything they can to marginalize Christians. They hate Christians. And they don't want Christians around. There's not overt opposition, but they're trying to marginalize them and say, you know, those Christians, they really don't matter. They're a very small part of the voting block anymore. And who are they anyway? But folks, I'm here to tell you tonight, we have the message of God. We have the power of God. And when the world and the devil try to marginalize our message, what are we to do? We are to boldly take it because it's the truth of God. And we should expect people to marginalize us and even to ridicule and make fun of us as if we were unimportant. And sometimes that's hard. So we've got to close. Our time is gone. There was violent opposition. There was indifferent toleration. Finally, there was saving reception, verses 41 and 42. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They were faithful and people 
got saved. You know, folks, our responsibility is not to produce the fruit. That's the work of the Spirit of God through the gospel. Our job is to be faithful with boldness and compassion to deliver the gospel in the face of opposition, in the face of ridicule, to be going with the power of the Spirit of God into all the world with the gospel. That's our responsibility. Now, I'm going to close with a football illustration. Probably some of you know there is a Super Bowl being played right now. And I want to commend you for coming to church on Super Bowl night. Now, I realize the two teams tonight really don't matter anyway, but I'm really glad that you're here tonight. And I hope you get the football illustration. I'm from Alabama. Uh, Alabama and Auburn are two really big rivals. I happen to be a Tennessee fan myself. I grew up there. So I hope you get the illustration. If you don't, I'll do a brief explanation. But it's supposed to be a true story. There were two mothers who were talking about their sons when one said that her son had gone out for football for the first time. And the second mother said, oh, that's nice. What position does your son play? And the other mother said, well, I'm really not sure, but I think it's called a drawback. Now, folks, there is no drawback in football. There's a quarterback and a halfback, but there's not a drawback. But you know, when you're on a team and you don't do what you're supposed to do, you really are a drawback. And if your life is not reflecting Jesus Christ, and you're not going with the gospel in a sense, though you're a part of this local church team, you may be a drawback to the work of God in this community, in this place. So let me challenge you to get your soul right with the God of heaven, if it's not, and to be what God would have you to be. We're very frail creatures. You know, I'm preaching to myself tonight. You know, I am fearful at times about evangelizing. At times, at times I go to a door and I knock, and in my soul I want to pray that nobody will be home because I'm a frail creature. But folks, let's do what God wants us to do. Let's have empowered, effective evangelism and see lives changed for the glory of God. That's why God's put you really here in this place in Chandler, Arizona. Let's bow our heads together.